we're doing a, the people series in June. Next month will be a fire series, just straight fire. Uh, so that'll be exciting. Um, and uh, because like it's really hot in Vegas. And so that's not really why, but I'm just thinking about all the heat and I've been trying to climb, but it's been really hot. And uh, so there's a lot going on and we're continuing this people series. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about the crowd. Uh, and we're going to be asking some questions about current events and talking and teaching about uh, how the Bible instructs and authors our behavior, how it shapes our heart. Uh, we're going to be talking about some of the popular opinion, finding wisdom, and how to love well. And uh, so we're going to look at it all from the perspective and all from the frame of Jesus. Uh, this has been uh, my consistent narrative is that at the heart and at the base of all of it, the frame of all of it must be our pursuit and our devotion to Jesus. Uh, if it gets outside of that, we get into humanistic mindsets and human will. Uh, and I want my life and the life of this community to be defined by the heart and the will of God. I love God's heart, I love his mind, and it always informs me really well. It always instructs my heart well. It really, really shapes my emotions and my thoughts and our emotions and thoughts for everything that we've got engaged in our life. Uh, some of us are fathers in this place. Pursuing the heart of God has established me as a better father, as a more loving, patient father, as a more understanding father. The Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be established. And it speaks to the priority of pursuit of God even when there's pressing need. So I trust and I want to encourage us to trust in all things, even when there's pressing need and pressing issue, trust that the pursuit of God is the most significant, defining effort we can have in our life and the life of others around us. To put it simply, to pursue God is to be better for all of the things that you need to be great for in your life. Being a parent being a brother or sister, being a son or daughter, being a businessman or a businesswoman, all the things you seek to do are done at their fullest potential when seeking God is the foundation of your and I life. That pretty cool? Okay, cool. So let's jump into it. Uh, we're going to be talking about the crowd today. The crowd, if you look at it, is a large collection of people. There's all kinds of different crowds that we've experienced. Uh, before COVID, there was a lot of crowds that would gather for a lot of reasons, concert, churches, uh, all kinds of different things, right? The crowd is just a large collection of people uh, in one place. Sometimes, you know, back in the day, not so much now, but when a new iPhone would come out, there would be a line and a crowd that would gather for it. Um, oftentimes, like crowds were, crowds were a sign of great success for a business uh, or for a church. Uh, it's just kind of associated, right? Like the more people there are, the business is probably doing well. It means more sales, more attention, more eyeballs. We have Twitter now, so we have a pretty good idea of what the crowd thinks. You just need to look it up and you'll find, uh, uh, whether Instagram or Twitter, you can find out what's trending. Uh, and so we have this real great understanding of what, what the crowd thinks, what the crowd wants, what the crowd is talking about. And so we see all these things, and oftentimes we've associated them as, hey, the crowd means success. And you look at it, and businesses thrive when there's a crowd. Churches have this apparent success when there's a lot of them, uh, a lot of people in the church. Um, you know, this place half full has a different perception than where it's at like right now, which is pretty much full. 
And that's just how it goes, is that people typically associate a crowd to success. Like, oh, there's a lot of people on it, it must be popping, it must be successful, it must be thriving. But when you look at it, in history, the crowd isn't always a, a sign of inherent good. The crowd isn't always a sign of inherent evil either. The crowd is a force. The crowd is like this apparent energy and this force on something, but it doesn't inherently have the nature of Christ embedded in it. It doesn't necessarily have good will in mind. I mean, the crowd killed Jesus, so the crowd didn't always have good ideas. <laughs> Sometimes the ideas a crowd have are really, really terrible. Other times, crowds have been incredible. They've brought incredible things, and they've brought incredible change. You look at the gathering at the mall and MLK speaking, and I have a dream, and you look at some of these places in history, a crowd actually caused incredible things. So a crowd isn't necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. You know, a crowd is kind of neutral. It depends on its leadership. It depends on its interest, what its goal is. So a crowd is not necessarily good or bad, but a crowd has a historical place in the Bible. And Jesus related to a crowd in a certain way that I want to talk about today because as we see the landscape of our life right now, we see a lot of gatherings, we see a lot of crowds, we see a lot of people that are pursuing some different things and some different groups that are gathering in some different ways. So I asked myself the question, okay, how did Jesus relate to those things which were crowds or large gatherings in his time? So we're going to look at some of those places and we're going to see what, what and how Jesus approached large amounts of people. And you'll see some different things that are beautiful and you'll see some things that are really informative for us. Because at the end of the day, that bracelet got it right. What would Jesus do? It got it right, and you hate to hearken to it because it's been hearkened to so many times, but it got it right that in a time like this and in all times, seeking God for wisdom is the answer. Even when we don't know what the pragmatic answer is yet, God knows. God has the answers, God has the solutions. We even sang that worship song which said it, and sometimes we sing worship songs and we don't understand the full implication of the song. Have you ever done this? You sang a song and then you're like, wow, that was really cool. And then you thought about the lyrics and you're like, wow, that's kind of a big statement I just made. We'll say things like really big time, like I give you my soul. You know what I mean? My soul longs for you. Like that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. And, it, and like, is it true? And there's a lot of things to be asked on that. But we really, uh, we really have this place in our world, in our life right now, where we ask this simple question. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of unknown and challenging things. So where do we go to and how do we look and what conclusions do we come to are all found in this beautiful pursuit of God. So we're going to look at it. And we're going to see, if you look at Matthew 19, 2. This is how Jesus related to crowds. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures on it so we can see how Jesus operated in the crowd or with the crowd. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. So right away in a very simple scripture, in a very simple phrasing, we see two things. One, that the crowd is in its best place when Jesus is leading. That the crowd is not inherently good or evil. And so when the crowd is following Jesus, we're in a really good spot. And, the, and then we see how Jesus operated with and or how he approached the crowd, which is he healed them there. So there's something that I find to be really significant about Jesus is he wasn't absent from the crowd. 
is that he wasn't disconnected from the crowd. He did not see the brokenness of a crowd and then disassociate himself or run from it. But in fact, the heart of God, the heart of Jesus, sees the places the crowd's in and moves towards the crowd to meet the need that God wants to meet in their life. And it always, to me, happens in a place of compassion. And if we, gotta, if we understand truly how Jesus operates, we must understand what this, 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 this force and this, this, this emotion or this choice of compassion truly looks like. Because when I see a Jesus operate in a crowd, I see, I, see, I see a heart that is moved to heal, not moved to judge. I see a heart that looks to partner, uh, not, not to disengage or disconnect. There's something really challenging about a crowd to us, especially when it doesn't look like or sound like us. And it's something we've got to choose in our life that no matter what the state of the people around me, whether it's large groups, small groups, or a single individual, I must, I must, I must pursue the heart of God on what he looks like in their life and choose to match that look. Because to me, it's not enough to see it and disengage, ignore it, act like it doesn't exist. To me, it's not the heart of Jesus to be absent from a crowd. To me, it's not the heart of Jesus to say, it's, it's not really my thing. I don't really know what I'm saying or doing and just kind of like doing that. Uh, I watched this one show where this guy does like a really nasty moonwalk and he looks funny doing it. And, and it's, it's just moonwalking out of dysfunctional relationships is not the answer. Moonwalking out of dysfunctional groups or churches is not the answer. Walking out of something and, and taking steps back because you don't have answers, you don't know what to do, or you didn't create the problem is not how Jesus operates. We know for sure and definitively that Jesus did not cause any brokenness or sickness in that crowd, and yet he still moved and he healed. So let's look at another scripture, Matthew 9, 36 through 38. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send uh, out laborers into his harvest. What do we see here? We see this drive of compassion led Jesus to heal and to teach and to shepherd. When we see people and or people groups or, 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 or something that's taking place that looks broken, that looks frustrated, that looks angry, that looks like something that we don't agree with, it looks like Jesus for us to move towards that people, to move towards that person and to say, what does it look like for me to be moved by compassion with this person or these people? It's the heart of Jesus to move towards people. Jesus loves everybody, like loves everybody. And Jesus partners really well to pursue everybody's healing, growth, and encounter with him. This is how Jesus moves and operates, and he invites us to move and operate in society in the same way. And this is why it's so significant and important for us to lay down all of our differences that disconnect us. Look, we don't have to agree with anyone on anything in order for us to have compassion. Compassion and agreement aren't the same thing. 
Compassion and agreement are not the same thing. Moving towards people is not saying I agree with you exactly how you think or exactly how you feel. It means that, look, the heart of God loves you and is moved towards you. So I'm going to do the same as well. So we, might, we must make a distinction, though, that we are moved by compassion because of people, but we are authored by God's wisdom. So agreement is not found because I have compassion on somebody that I then choose to mirror and shape all of my behavior to the recipient of my compassion. So like when I'm compassionate about Brixton and it leads me, my son, my five-year-old son, when I'm compassionate for Brixton and it provokes me to move towards him, to love him, and or to talk to him and connect with him and to equip him or to partner in some kind of brokenness or healing, my compassion for him doesn't have me start acting like a five-year-old. My compassion for Brixton leads me to take the identity I have in Jesus of love and pursuit of perfect love and bring it to my recipient of compassion, my son. And the same thing happens in our communities and our society is that we are defined by Jesus, but we are moved towards people. This is what it looks like is that the very form of who I am, Romans 12, 2, but don't be trans do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may prove what is the perfect and acceptable will of God. I am not formed by this world, but I am in the form of godliness moved to love and have compassion for this world. Are you guys tracking with me? <laughs> Compassion does not require to be transformed into the image of the person I have compassion for. Jesus' compassion didn't lead him to be paralyzed so that he could be on the same page as the par paraplegic or to the paralyzed person. Jesus' compassion didn't lead him to make himself blind so he could be on the same page with the blind. Jesus' compassion led him to heal the blind so they could be on the same page as Jesus. The page we're all looking to be on the same page as is Jesus's page. So whatever our condition, whatever our shape, whatever our mold, whatever our opinions or perspective, it looks like all of us taking it, laying it on the altar of God and say, actually, I don't know necessarily, or I choose to understand that I don't know the way and I don't have all of the truth. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pursue your way and your truth. Because remember what it says about Jesus in the Bible. It says it so clearly, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But how hard is it for us to take our way, our truth, and our life, and trade it for Jesus' way, truth, and life? It's really hard. It's super hard. Because for whatever reason, we really like the way we think right now. For whatever reason, we really like to defend our truth right now, as it's been in our history and it's been shaped up to this point. But to engage in a relationship with Jesus is not to take on someone else's truth or someone else's way or someone else's life, but it's for us to take on a continued transformation into the way and the life and the truth of Jesus. And that always looks like being led by compassion and love in your relationships and in your city and in your communities and in your nation. Jesus' truth never violates compassion and love. And Jesus had compassion on a lot of people that he didn't agree with. 
Jesus' reputation became one of being and hanging out with sinners. And that's when he said, when they asked him, hey, why do you hang out with sinners? In Luke 5, 30 through 32, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus' reputation was one of this, that, that his character was not compromised by the people he pursued in compassion and love. This is what it means to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. This is what it means to be light in a place that is dark. And whenever the light huddles together, because it's intimidated by the dark, it doesn't understand the power of the light in it. Because you are light and the world is dark does not mean that you disassociate with darkness because you are not like it. It actually is the very reason we choose to go into. See, I think it's really interesting because sometimes we give ourselves permission to associate only with that which is like us, so light. So we give ourselves permission to go, hey, light huddles with light and that's kind of how it works. And yet God in his word all throughout scripture really actually was very clear that the darkness is an invitation for the light to pursue it. Not permission to disassociate and distance. So when we see confusion, when we see brokenness, it's actually my understanding that the Jesus in me provokes me and moves me towards it with compassion and love. And I think you see all throughout scripture that Jesus operated this way. You see that Jesus didn't avoid hard topics or hard discussions. You see that Jesus spoke eternal truth versus what was the perceived truth. You could see this with the adulterous woman that was thrown before Jesus and everybody's like, here's our truth, she should die by stoning. And that wasn't, that actually wasn't wrong. Like, that's the interesting thing about it, right? Is it appeared to be true, what they said. What the crowd brought to Jesus to murder a woman seemed to actually be truth. And yet Jesus engaged his truth, his way, and his life, and he spoke it in that situation. And so we understood a deeper truth at that point than the truth of the law. And how does that relate to us now? Well, it looks like this. Our people are brought before our attention, and depending on where they're at, they may be in sin, they may be misunderstood, they may be sick, they may be broken, they may be whatever it looks like, but I can guarantee you this, that if you are in touch with how Jesus thinks and feels, you are going to heal, you're going to redeem, you're going to cover, you're going to champion, and you're going to cause people and call people to go and sin no more. So whatever the situation is, whoever's brought before you, whatever is around you, understanding the mind of Christ and the heart of God is the key to bringing heaven on earth. It is our relational connection to bring a pattern of my behavior into this world, into this earth. So I'm friends with a guy who lives in heaven. I've got an insight to how his behavior looks and then I match his heart, I match his behavior, I match his thoughts. All of a sudden, that which is in heaven is now on earth. Because I became an ambassador, I became a witness. These are all biblical phrases and terms. Ambassador, witness, I carry an agenda of heaven 
King of kings, Lord of lords. Which means that this, look, like he's the king of kings. He knows no respecter of boundary of what some other king says is his domain and territory. King of kings. Meaning his territory supersedes all the boundaries of the other guys' territories. And that's really important in a time like this. Because when, when Jesus, when God is king of kings of this earth and this world, and we represent a different citizenship, a different society, a different culture, it means that we don't walk around and go, oh yeah, I think I should think like that. Oh, well, that's pretty popular right now. I guess I should think like that. Like when we are simply just reflecting the massive popular trends of our society, we aren't from the kingdom of heaven. We're from the kingdom of the most popular input in society right now. And that's not Christianity in any time of history. Christianity in all forms and times of history, when it's found in its sincerest form, looks like not at all reflecting the sentiments or emotions that are inherently found in this earth, but it looks like a priority of reflecting the sentiments of Jesus in heaven all the time. There's a reason it's called eternal truth. It's not trendy, it's not based on a certain season of fashion and things like that. It goes from the beginning to the end. Alpha and Omega, knows no end, knows no beginning. It is transcendent above all truths, all trends, all popular opinions, all popular ideas. And just because a lot of people are rallying to anything, whether it be a church, a business, a political party, anything, does not mean that it is eternal truth. So we're moved towards people, but we're shaped by God, the author and the perfecter of my faith the author and the perfecter of my faith. Isn't that fun? That's cool. Okay, I got a couple other scriptures for you and then we're gonna jump here and there and we're gonna go all over the place. I think there's really something significant to take away in all of this and that Jesus doesn't just see the crowd, but he sees the person in the crowd. The person in the crowd is this really important thing. If you study crowd mentality throughout history, you realize that it's a force to be reckoned with, but you also realize that crowd mentality is not always reflective of the individual or the people that comprise of the crowd. Meaning there's a lot of different opinions, insights, and emotions within a crowd. It can seem like it is unanimous and in unity, but when you really take a close look, the crowd has some differences and distinguished things that we must identify. Bottom line, Jesus sees the person in the crowd. And you can see this with the woman with the issue of blood. Uh, Mark 5, 30 through 34. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? I want to make a point about this. Just because you're associated with Jesus and you're a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean that you don't sometimes miss what Jesus sees or feels. You can be a Christian and really miss Jesus' perspective and miss Jesus' feelings. It's, it's actually not that hard because Jesus is really great, guys. Like, he thinks, I don't know if you know, like, that's my revelation of the day. Jesus is really great. He thinks more advanced than I think. He sees all of the variables in a way that I can't and I don't, even though I'd like to. He's wiser than I am. His emotional competency is way beyond my range. I mean, my wife's is way beyond my range. 
And you know, Jesus is way beyond my range. I had a certain, I, I don't know, you might be like me. Maybe it's, I think, it, I know it is a man thing a bit, but I know that some men have a little bit more of a range than I do. I had a certain point in the day where literally like all of my words are gone. Have you ever hit this moment? Like I've said all of them and there's actually none left. <laughs> Despite the appeal of anyone in my life, including my kids, my wife, friends, they're like, what do you think, man? I'm like, yeah, dude, I love you, man. <laughs> And they're like, what do you think about this and the other? I'm like, bro, hey, yeah, uh, uh, I don't know what it is, but I have a certain bucket with a certain finite amount of words. It's like when your teachers used to give you like, hey, give me a 4,000 word essay. That's all I got, like 4,000 words or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden it's just over because the paper's done for the day. <laughs> and you don't ever write a paper in more words than you needed to for an A, <laughs> right? What was I saying? <laughs> All right, verse 32, and he looked around to see who had done it, because he said, who touched me? But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth, told him the whole truth. I like this part, because I think Jesus did something very interesting there, which apparently he listened to her whole truth. I think that's really interesting. Because see, Jesus brought something that wasn't in her full truth history. She's like, hey, I have this issue with blood. And he listened to her whole truth even though he was capable of healing her and he healed her. So I find that very interesting because to hear and to listen to somebody's truth is not necessarily the agreement to keep them there or say it's okay to stay there. Because Jesus ultimately wants to heal. Jesus ultimately wants to make us whole. But Jesus is also really willing to hear about how we haven't been whole. And one doesn't have to be true while the other is false. You can hear someone's story about how they're not whole, how they're not right, how they're angry, how God's not good and all these things. And you could just listen. And then still deliver Jesus' heart at the end of it all. And sometimes hearing someone's whole truth even though it's not God's truth, is actually the very door opening that allows you to bring God into their life, right? Like, tell me your truth. Tell me your story. Tell me where you've been, what it's been like. And I don't necessarily need to wrestle over conclusions and ideas and narratives. I could just simply listen and understand that the answer at the end of it all, of course, is God and God's heart, but I can listen. And, and, and them rehearsing their narrative of what has not been good or what has been broken does not make the truth of God irrelevant. In fact, it's the perfect thing that makes God's truth relevant in that moment. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. So he heard her whole truth and she told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So what do we see here? We see how Jesus operates in a crowd. The whole crowd was pressing in against him. And Jesus had this perspective of a single person in the crowd. And he had this connection to a single person in the crowd which led him to heal. And in all of this, we've got a lot of different like groupings. Uh, I don't know if you've even noticed it, but before all of the, the protests and everything like that, <clears throat> even in like COVID, there was like groups, right? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I have something in my throat. <laughs> 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 Horrible timing. 
guys, one time I was, rec- I was on camera for a message for us, and I had something in my throat, and like for five minutes I was trying not to cough on camera. <laughs> I'm gonna pull it up one day and show you guys, because you might be able to notice. You edited it. <laughs> um, um, but you even saw like during those times, there were certain home, like stay at home folks that were like quarantine folks, you know what I'm saying? And then those people that were like, what's quarantine? You know what I mean? And, and then, then there was those who were not quarantining, were mad at quarantiners, and then quarantiners who were mad at non-quarantiners, and then masked people, not masked people. And it was all really like, there was a lot of like crowds around a certain idea, right? Are you guys experienced this as well? And so we've been having like this like over common interest or idea or opinion gathering around a certain notion. It's kind of our habit a bit, but I think what's really important to all of it is that we don't combat the ideology of our certain groups. Like here's my idea of what it looks like and then I swing it around like a weapon towards the other groups, right? (laughs) Right? Unity, check it out, unity is actually impossible if ideology leads the way. It's impossible. Because you'll only be unified with those who think the same as you do, feel the same as you do, and are going in the same direction. But this is just not how Jesus operates. He had a lot of different lifestyles around him. Fishermen, tax collectors, lawyers. I mean, he had a lot of different lifestyles, a lot of different people. He had the Johns who were like, let me just lay on your chest. And the Peters who were like, what's wrong with you? Give me my sword. Who am I fighting for you, Jesus? Right? Like, they didn't think the same at all. Like, at all. Like, at all. (laughs) I'd actually really like, when I get to heaven, I'm going right to that spot where they're talking. I'm going to be like, let me see. I just want to see the differences. I just want to talk to you both. I want to hear from you. Because at times I'm like, I'm a John guy. And at other times I'm like, I'm a Peter guy. You know what I mean? But Jesus didn't just relate to people through how they, like their ideas of what life was. He had people that believed that he should leave like a, a revolution politically. He had people that thought he was the worst ever, the Antichrist, like the, 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 like the devil. People thought he was literally of the devil. And then people thought he was the son of God, Peter, in that story, or who do you see, who do you say that I am? Son of God. So you, you see this idea, like you, you don't need to agree, you don't really even need to lead with your ideas versus their ideas. It won't cause any unity, it won't define and or allow you to be led by compassion. What we must do is simply this: is that we must rally in unity around two banners, love and compassion. Because love and compassion disregards ideology as a disqualifier of relationship. Love and compassion don't require us to think the same. They don't require us to feel the same. They don't require us to even be going in the same direction. You could be a woman with the issue of blood on the ground grabbing the garment of somebody and not moving in the direction as the crowd was. You could be this single isolated outlier, the sheep that left the hundred, and Jesus still leads us to recognize and see the thing that's not moving in the direction others are. That don't look like what the others look like, that don't feel like what the others look like, and don't act like what the others look like. Jesus' posture actually leads us to go to the people that, to be honest with you, have almost the most unlike Jesus characteristics because he's a physician, bringing healing, bringing his nature to those that are in need. 
This is why broken people are so much better at having a relationship with Jesus than really religious people. Because the challenge and the danger of being religious is that you believe your godliness without God. It's like the hardest thing to, to break. It's like one of the hardest things to undo. If someone believes that they are like God in their character, in their demeanor, and how they act, because they follow a lot of rules, but they don't have a relationship with him, that's religion. And it's dangerous because this person has this form of godliness but forsakes the power of God. And it's dangerous because this person believes that they're better than others around them. But the broken person, the truly broken person is like, I need help. Oh, I need anything that can help me. Sometimes they choose really terrible wrong things and then sometimes they get the gospel message and they're like, yes, he's the way, the truth, and the life. That's awesome because my life stinks and I want Jesus. That's the interesting thing about James 1.5 and all of this. If we lack wisdom, let us ask God. But you know what you're not gonna do? You're not gonna ask God for wisdom if you think you've already got it. If you think you already got all the answers, you're not gonna recognize that you lack wisdom and then ask God. You're gonna be like, I got it. And the way I think is right. The Bible talks about if anyone, 1 Corinthians 3.18, I believe it is, if any man believes that he is wise, let him become a fool so that he may gain wisdom. And, and the reality is, is that the presumption of wisdom, the presumption of I know what's right is actually a problem. That we actually grow in wisdom when we come to a, a humility conclusion or to a conclusion that follows humility, which is I don't. Like right now, you know one of the most frustrating things about this whole climate and scene right now is it actually makes me really uncomfortable that I don't know what the answers are. I don't know what to say all the time and I really wanna know. Like I really wanna have the answers that make everyone go, yeah, that's right. That's really good, amen. And yet it seems as though that it's just a really challenging thing to find right now but when you find and you recognize that you don't have the answer on how to raise your kids well, it's actually a beautiful invitation for you to find God's wisdom on raising kids. When you don't know how to rebound from this financial nightmare, it's actually a beautiful opportunity for you to recognize the lack and pursue God's wisdom for your situation. Whenever you recognize and are willing to humble yourself and say, I don't know. I don't have the answers for our society. I don't have our answers for like how we fix this, the racial stuff in our city or our nation. I, I totally have compassion. I, I totally have a love for people and, I, and I, I wanna see what's right. I wanna see God's wisdom established in our city. But you know what? I don't have all the answers. So here's what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna seek God. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hear people's truth. I'm gonna listen to it. I'm gonna be shaped by God. I'm gonna find God's wisdom for people. I'm gonna find the love for people from God. And I'm gonna allow God to shape all of these things. And whatever way or truth or life I've been living that is counterintuitive to God's way, truth, and life, I'm surrendering it all right now. This is what the altar of God looks like in our life, is taking our way, our truth, and our life and laying it on the altar, saying every way I've thought, every way I've felt about everything, I lay it on the altar all the time. 
You know what's beautiful? The Bible talks about he shakes everything so that that which can be shaken will be shook and then that which cannot will remain. The process with God is like, hey, what we're going to do here is the storms are going to come. They're going to beat against the house. They're going to just absolutely pummel the thing, you know? And, and if it stands and whatever stands, that's eternal truth. And whatever gets leveled, it was the house built on the sand, and it was never actually foundationally placed on Jesus. This is what shaking and the storms of our life do, is they reveal to us faulty foundations. They reveal to us like, oh, I thought, like how many of us Christians actually feel like our, our house is built on the rock of God? Probably a lot of us would be like, yes, I build my house on the rock of God. And then all of a sudden you realize that part of your house, maybe the new wing you put on, maybe the, the renovation, into, you just find out when a storm comes or when something like this hits, you're like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I need to lay all this on the altar and I need to see what's God and what's not. I need to see what's in the mind of Jesus and then what's been in my mind that I thought was Jesus but isn't Jesus. I need to have this moment where I'm not the... I think we like, we read our scriptures and I'm almost done. I think we read our scriptures and we put ourselves in the place of the hero in the story, right? Like we don't often put ourselves like, I, okay, so let's assume I'm a Pharisee in this situation, right? Not, not, we don't do that very often because they're the worst, right? We all know that they're the villain in the Bible and they're the worst, right? Like, so we don't often go, well, maybe I'm not so much like Jesus, yet with the adulterous woman, but maybe I'm the dude that has a stone in my hand. Or maybe I'm the dude that brings the sinners to Jesus all the time and is like, come on Jesus, let's stone them. Maybe I don't act like Jesus, maybe I still act like a Pharisee and Sadducee sometimes. And when we read these stories, sometimes I think we think, we think like very like, this is the law, so let's kill them. This is the law, you're wrong, so you're dead to me. Because rarely does our actual behavior or attitude lead to an actual killing, but sometimes our heart behavior leads to us acting as if the person ceases to exist in our life. Which is really just the heart of murder anyways, right? I can live better if you cease to exist to my reality. So you're dead to me. Disconnecting and giving permission to kill off people emotionally in our life is just not the heart of Jesus. It feels safer and it feels better. It's just not how his heart works. He leads us to forgive way more than people could violate our places of safety and trust. When Peter asks, how many times do I need to forgive this person? Right? A lot. <laughs> more than they have the ability to offend you. That's what it looks like to have the unconditional, limitless love of God in our life. It goes way beyond the finite hate of man. This is fun, right? Did you guys have fun today? <laughs> I had fun today. I find that when I don't see you guys for like 10 weeks, that half the time when I'm preaching, I'm looking at people and I'm like, I want to hug them or talk to them. You guys ever have this? 
Well, maybe not because you, you haven't preached them many times, but I, and I, I just sometimes I look at them and I think, oh, I'd love to spend time with them in the middle of me preaching. <laughs> love people, and sometimes it can be distracting, but it's very important that we learn to see the person in the crowd, be moved with compassion, be moved to hear their truth, and to partner in healing and transformation. And also, because we're not Jesus, be willing to have others do the same to us. Whatever your truth is, understand that our true desire ought to be for God to bring healing and transformation in our life, not defend our truth. 